1: Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado.
0: Cha cha cha! a What a screamer!
1: podcast devoted entirely to Rob Holding calling Traore a brick shit house. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Alex Smith, good block man on Twitter Yankee Gunner. <clears throat> there's not much from the Wolves game that I think any of us want to dig into. But hidden in there, when Traore dived in the box, I presume is when it happened. There's a video going around of Rob Holding saying, "How does he go down like that? He's built like a brick shit house." <clears throat> it is a great moment. And we are going to devote the entire episode to analyzing it because, quite frankly, the football is, as they say, shit. Hey, here's the thing. What if football is just bad? United come back from 2-0 down, win 3-2. What if football is just bad? Maybe football is just bad. And we've been devoting ourselves to it for no good reason whatsoever. Uh, We'll get into that and maybe some issues of the game itself. Look, if you want the big meta questions answered, we dived into them the whole group. Uh, on the instant reaction pod on Patreon, and, and we really got into it. Clive and I uh, went toe to toe a bit. Left his friends. Um, I mean, I say that we're secretly not friends at all. We're frenemies, but but we we said we left his friends. Everything is good. I would like to talk about the actual football a little bit today, because I think when losses like this happen and when the the team is in a bit of decline. I think what can happen is the podcasts all start to take on these very meta tones. What's wrong with the club? Where is the club going? What's wrong with the manager? And like, we forget to just talk a little bit about what happened in the game. So hopefully we can talk a little bit about the game, even though, let's be honest, it's not one that we necessarily want to dive into at a granular level, but I think there's some meat on that bone, um, so to speak. Uh, And with that having been said, Tim's on Twitter. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. So, we record these things morning, my time, and uh, the coffee is still waking up my, my vocal cords. So, apologies for the frogginess. It will work its way out as I mute myself periodically throughout this podcast. Tim, I, you know, look, I, I have sympathy for the fact that Arteta went into the international break realizing that he had to make some changes, right? It mm-hmm. wasn't working. The Villa game, I think, was a pretty clear sign of that. He loses Thomas Party, and now it seems for potentially like six weeks. Um, You know, he gets the red card from Pepe in a game that, you know, admittedly wasn't going great, but, um, you know, doesn't have him to pick. And suddenly now he's trying to make changes to a system that was functional, if not effective, without the players that he'd ideally potentially want in there to make that system work. So Mm -hmm. I do have sympathy for it. I think this was sort of a game of two halves. Um, Not that we were particularly good in either of them, but I want to start with the first half and say for a team that has had some reasonable structure and not been caught sort of running back towards their goal frantically a lot under arteta that really went out the window in this first half and i'm curious to get your take on why so often and so easily we found ourselves running back towards our goal being beaten for pace and and really stretched in this game when that you know Say what you want about the flaws in Arteta's system. That hasn't really been something that's characteristic of it. And I'm, sh- I'm curious why you think we're starting to see that emerge.
2: Mm. I mean, I think it's because it's a balance thing, isn't it, right? And um, a, a lot of managers go through this in, in mid-table teams. Um, they, they kind of get one bit right but can't get both bits Right. the kind of the the balance between defense and attack. And that's why mid table teams become mid table teams, because they forever fight that battle and they'll get a little run of good form with a particular system. And then it will get found out and then they'll scrabble around again. And then or they'll they'll try and expand. It won't work. They'll go back to basics. You know that that's kind of look look at like a club like Crystal Palace. They do this with managers. Right. They try and go a bit more expansive. Oh, no, that didn't work. Um, Let's get Sam Allardyce in. And uh, okay, all right, we're okay now. And, you know, they just go through that. That's that's the life of a mid table team. They go through this kind of we can't do both things at once. And uh, I I guess my um, assessment of it would be that Arteta has noticed that maybe Xhaka and Sabayos as a midfield two um, are basically centre backs. Um, They get pushed so far back. Mm. Uh, We saw it against Leeds. They both started quite high against Leeds and gradually got pushed back. And I think that's what happened here as well, because Wolves, the the similarity really between this and the Aston Villa game, um, certainly in the first half, is basically that Wolves realise they can run through us really, really easily because there's not a lot of athleticism. Um, And I'm sure we've all or most of us have seen that pass map graphic by now of, of this game or the average position graphic as well. And you can see where all the Arsenal players are and there's just a massive chasm uh, around the center circle and Wolves have really kind of good athletic players who can, who can kind of run through that. And, uh, you know, they, they bought, they invested a lot in young players mm. uh, this summer. Wolves, they, they lost like uh, Diego Jota and Matt Doherty, but they bought like Semedo Um they bought in, you know, Ruben Silva who came on. They've got quite a young and fairly athletic team and, and we just don't have an athletic team, and I think it was a consequence of trying to push up the pitch a little bit, trying to play in Wolves's half. I think that's that's definitely something I've seen in the last couple of games. That Arsenal start like that, and eventually get pushed backwards.
1: Mm.
2: Um, and and yeah, I, I think it's it's really as simple as that. We tried to play another twenty yards up the pitch, um, which is probably why we started Louise overholding as well, and and it just it it doesn't work without. Um, the more kind of athletic players um, in the middle of the pitch, and 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 that's what we saw against again against Wolves. They just ran through us.
1: Yeah, and and I mean it is. We are going to come on to sort of the squad issues and the players just not being good enough and all that meta stuff. I, I think will come up, but I I do think that what was happening in this game is is worth examining, Clyde, because you know I I don't even want to harken back to the Emery era. I just want to say that these problems were the one thing that I I feel that Arteta had sort of eliminated. And we always said that he did it at the expense of the attack. Um, But, you know, you now see, I think, the conundrum he has because he goes to a back four. He tries to, you know, play a system that might put players in more traditional attacking positions. And then you start to see why the midfield is such a liability. Can't win running races, easily turned around, The, the the spacing isn't right again, and and some of the old problems rear their head. The thing that's sort of disappointing, though, is, you know, other than the goal, which was essentially from a corner kick, I think you'd say. I mean, it's from open play, sort of, but not really. That was our one shot until I think at halftime we had two shots, and the and the other one was David Luiz's wild free kick. So, the thing that I'm struggling with is how we are able to simultaneously lose the structure defensively without generating more pressure and 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 part of it I think is just down to a team that is very one dimensional attack 36 crosses is not how you (laughs) ideally want to set up your attack when you have Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang as the lone center forward so I mean are you are you more concerned about the chasm that was opening up that allowed us to be run at you know um, by by their admittedly fast and tricky players or are you more concerned that the the trade-off we made didn't result in us actually seeing any boost to the attack at all?
0: Yeah, it's about a trade-off. It's, it's, (laughs) we've done a few podcasts in our in our recent history, and um, I think between the three of us, we may have mentioned about five hundred times a lack of athleticism in Mm centre midfield. Yeah, so. Let's not insult the listener, shall we? We all know the drill here. We all know. We've been trying to, we've been waiting for that player to come in as soon as we get him. For, after three and a half games, he goes off with a thigh injury. Somebody can actually step into people rather than step away from people. And as soon as you see it, it becomes normal. And uh, okay, that's what a midfield looks like. Then we become immediately um, reliant upon him and he's suddenly not here anymore, which is a real shame. So we're now back to what we've had for previous years. And you have to ask yourself a question. Why are we still doing this? Why can't we recognise what modern football actually is? You've only got to look around at our contemporaries and I don't mean Man City, Liverpool, Spurs and Chelsea. I mean Everton, Leicester, Leeds, Wolves, right? And we'll be lucky to get to Leicester. If you look at their teams... They are full of sprinters all over the pitch. Mm. Strong players, technical players that could move. And it's not like, and it's just obvious. And they look at us, and that's the Villa boy. I've got to put them in there as well. They look at us and they see our weaknesses. And and what we used to do, and it wasn't something we liked because we had a lot of shots against us, but the shot quality wasn't great. But what we used to do, the last line of our defence, was the first line of our defence, and we had a big deep-lying system, and we played out through. And uh, it worked, right? But it worked because our strikers were above their XG, shall we say. They were really taking high-quality chances, and we were winning the margins. And what we were really doing, we were were playing a system which suited our players and really covered up the weaknesses of our players. So we had multiple centre-halves that weren't really strong, but they were great in the three, We've got centre midfielders that can't run, so if they get beat, we've got three centre backs there. We've got a few wing backs actually that don't mind going forward. So it suits them. And, you know, the best poly system for us is probably a three-five-two where we can actually get two strikers together. That's probably the one system we haven't tried rather than the three, four, three. Have two strikers together and get a bit of box presence and have a, a player in behind them. And that just suits the players that we have. So you have a decision to make. Do I implement my system or do I implement my system that suits the players? And we don't like the system that suits the players because we don't get enough shots. But actually, yeah. I think it does suit the players, and I've I've been quite consistent on that. I don't particularly love it, but I've had some good days with it. Yeah, that's true. We got to Europa <clears got to throat> League final with it. You know, we got to the FA Cup final with it. And we we won. won the FA Cup.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we won. We
0: won. We won big games. I mean, let's look back to. Even 2017, was it was 2017, I think it was Team Chelsea, I can remember now, yeah. 2017. I think that was the back three system, I think it was. And you know, with the Chelsea game, with Shaka, with Ramsey ahead of him. It's who we are at the moment, Until we fundamentally change the player profiles that we have. And despite our leaning for 3-8 and 4 and all the rest of it, I'm afraid we're lacking the personnel.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> I agree. I mean, here's, here's the thing, right? I... I coaches have limitations just like players do. The first, the the system that Arteta had implemented that was having some success, I don't think was going to get us where we want to go, but maybe it was going to get us to the ceiling of what this squad can do because maybe just maybe what we're seeing is this squad is never a top four squad. Now we can point some fingers of blame at Arteta for that too, because I think he's been involved in some recruitment and signing decisions that, you know, he has to take some responsibility for as does the club. And that's something we can come on to in just a bit, but yeah, I mean, we all wanted to see the attack boosted. And maybe this coach can make us functional with this squad, but cannot make us an effective attacking team with this squad without the whole thing going to pieces. And um, I want to explore that a little bit more, but I think at this point we have to take a pause to talk about something else just briefly. This game had a very preseason feel at times, especially in the first half. And Tim, I think a lot of that is the reaction to the injury that we saw. A really scary clash of heads. Um I don't want to moralize about football too much. People love to, to crap on football and crap on FIFA and crap on premier league. I do think they deserve it in this case. I think the way the sport handles head injuries is a problem. Um, we're learning now that even just heading the ball in practice, in training can lead to CTE can lead to your know, concussive effects that, that build up and, and lead to damage down the road. Um, clashes like this, you know, can lead to very serious injury. Um, you know one player is going to the hospital the other player is getting bandaged up and bleeding through his bandage and you know i mean has to be removed from the game eventually i i am not a doctor and i wasn't on the pitch so i can't say that they weren't able to determine with certainty that he did not suffer a concussion having said that we do know that those effects can be seen days later and not right away um mm. i mean where do you, where do you portion the blame here i mean clearly the sport itself the game needs to implement something that allows teams to make more sensible choices about head injuries, whether it's compulsory yeah. subs, you know, that that you that don't count against your three substitutions, that are decided by the referee rather than the team or an impartial doctor from you know the the league that's not with the club to say this player has to come off. Um, but in this instance, given that none of those things are in place, how disappointed were you with the decision to let David Luiz stay on? And uh, fully acknowledging that maybe. Maybe they did make the right determination. I mean, I can't imagine that they did. I'm just saying. I, mm. I'm acknowledging that I'm not a doctor. I'm acknowledging that yeah, yeah. you know there are tests that they do that maybe are more sophisticated than I'm giving credit. But in my view, my non-expert view, this was this was a pretty bad move. Do you do you concur?
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I kind of um recently promised myself that, you know, I, I wouldn't like tweet during certainly the first half, or that I wouldn't look at Twitter during the first half mm. um during <laughs> games. And um and, and I and I kept to that until I saw this incident because it just it just I, I guess I responded to it quite emotionally, um, not least because, you know, it, it's quite shocking when you see someone injured in the way that uh, Raul Jimenez, Jimenez was. Um and and that's, you know, there's something quite shocking about that. And it and it kind of um it makes you respond emotionally. And immediately I was just like, this this is really irresponsible. And again, all the same caveats. I'm not a doctor. I can't speak to the efficacy of the the testing they did. Um and look, they brought Louise off at half time, so obviously all wasn't well. Um, I, I understand, you know, that apparently that was about the cut and not the concussion and things like that. I, I think what's increasingly clear is that this is a decision that has to come out of the hands um, of the of the managers and the players. Um, you can't like it's a nonsense to self-assess. I mean, the, like literally asking someone who might have suffered a brain injury to like assess their own brain is, is just nonsensical. And what's clear is that managers, um, managers aren't objective enough um, in this scenario. And um, we've seen this, we've seen this a lot with Arsenal. I I remember Lauren Koscielny uh, playing with concussion a few times, squadron Mustafi, played with a concussion and had to miss, like, two games um, afterwards. And, the, like, the protocol that's in place now is if you go off with a head injury, like, David Louise is not allowed to play. Uh, I suspect he wouldn't have anyway. He's not allowed to play on Thursday now. You have to leave six days so why doesn't that count in game why do we only make that determination after the game i i think what's clear is that that players and managers can't be trusted to make these decisions themselves because they're in mm. too much of a bubble where their jobs are on the line and results are too important and things like that and and i guess i get that at the same time the other thing that i've thought for quite a long time um, admittedly looking from the outside I think football is an exceptionally immature environment exceptionally immature um, I think even just a lot of the you know quote-unquote smart people um, in football don't have a lot of emotional intelligence um, frankly which I mean given the environment it is and you take kids out of school at a certain age and make them footballers from a very young age and blah 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 like of course they they may you know things like that may happen but it's very very immature it's very you know um this result like whether we get one point or zero against wolves or whether we give up a substitution against wolves so that we can you know we brought on Lacazette in the 82nd minute for fuck's sake like I, I can't possibly like give up a substitution against wolves um you know so I'm willing to risk like someone's brain for that like that is it's just pathetic it's really pathetic and you've only got to look at the stupid like um primary school level um arguments that happen and i hate to dredge up like the shore cross thing but it's just like a first-hand Uh, kind of example I have that when there's an injury like that for example what what do footballers and football managers who are like guys in their 50s and 60s for fuck's sake going like oh he didn't mean it he's such a nice boy and it's just Mm -hmm. like that is literally what a nine or ten year old would say in that scenario like none of that matters and it's the same here this is like this is primary school level thinking. This is, I can't, I, I, I'm, I'm under pressure. I cannot give up a substitution in a Premier League game in November against Wolves. And, and that being the case, I think football has too often proven itself too immature to handle this scenario. And in the UK, there's a lot going on at the moment um, with uh, dementia. Like a lot of players, uh, you know, admittedly from another era, Um, You know, but lots of cases of dementia and lots of the families of those players are campaigning and football has shown a real, a real reticence to deal with it. Even now, even now, those families are getting told no, because football, again, lives in this very, very immature school bubble that it doesn't want to confront things like this. And therefore, I think it has to be taken out of their hands and we need to get some adults in the room.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, Raul Jimenez suffered a, a, a fracture of his skull. Uh, he is recovering, thankfully. Uh, sounds like he's going to be okay. How okay? You know, I mean, it's still too early to say. But, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, but there was a moment after the clash where Luis came back on. He was bandaged up, and he went to head a ball, and I winced. Like, I I winced watching him try to head that ball. And then there's obviously the shot, the the viral image going around of the blood seeping out of his... His wound, and look, <clears throat> a nasty cut isn't a reason for someone to come off a pitch, let's be clear. The, the blood seeping out is what makes the image so visceral. It's what's happening on the inside of your brain that you can't see that causes the problem. It's easy to see a wound that's nasty and say, that player shouldn't be on the pitch, but it's actually the wounds you can't see that the club and the game need to address, and that's the issue. Um, you know, the, the idea of just man up. Uh, they used to call it getting your bell rung. And we should be smarter than that and have moved on from that. Clive, I don't want to make this whole pod about concussions, but I certainly don't want to shut you out of this conversation. So uh, a quick word from you on on how this is handled yeah. and how it should be handled.
0: It's all around player welfare, isn't it? And this is something that football battles itself with. When we play games every two or three days, we say, oh, when I, players like to play, don't want to train. We just don't want to address player welfare. And Tim's absolutely right. He should be taken out of the hands. There should be concussion substitutes. We already know this. I read something today. We're going to look at this next season. Well, Why can't it be for next games? Are we waiting for someone to die? Now, uh, When I was younger, I actually had a friend who actually did a very similar thing. actually died on the pitch similar situation, came back on and actually died on the pitch, 18-year-old. who's never left me, and I always think we don't understand head injuries. It's very simple. In rugby, they take them off, have a HIA, they call it, head, head injury assessment. They ask them a number of questions. If they can't answer them appropriately, they don't go back on the pitch. But the thing is, it's an immediate substitution. How can a doctor assess a player on the floor, on the wet grass, sitting there, assessing them? The pressure of the clock, the pressure of the game, the pressure of the result all around him. It's very unfair to put a doctor in that situation. It's very unfair to put the player in that situation who naturally wants to stay on. Take it away from them. And look after the players It's very important. They're, they're, that is the game. It's all we spend our time talking about is the players. What are we waiting for? I just, it's, it's criminal and football needs to grow up.
1: Yeah, well said. All right, so let's... Let's move on from that. I mean, look, I, I think it's fair to say that the players were impacted by this briefly. I'm not prepared to say that this impacted why the game went the way it went. So I don't think we're going to approach this podcast from the standpoint of all the players and, and everybody involved has an excuse for the way this game went because of this incident. I mean, if you see it differently, fair play. I just, I think that would be eliding some of the issues. So, um, you know, Clive, as we get to the second half, I, I think the thing that is disturbing, you know, we used to say about Arteta, that what he was doing really well and where he had an advantage when they had the drinks breaks during Project Restart, we really improved after that, that he was coaching up the team and having no fans in the stands is a benefit to him because he can coach up the team from the sideline, which makes it that much more concerning for me that I thought somehow we managed to almost be worse in the second half because I don't know what Wolves decided. I think Nuno got it wrong. They could have probably... I think, blown us out of the water in this game. I mean, I'm not trying to be overly negative. I they, they were running at us, and we couldn't handle it. The way we defended for their second goal, I have never seen something so passive to a second ball in my life. I mean, Leno makes that first save, and everybody's just watching it. I think they could have hit us for a few more. But in the second half, they opted to basically call off the dogs and sit deep, and they didn't even really counter. So we really had a chance to to make that 45 minutes a hell for them. And it never materialized. And I am curious, you know, coming out of the dressing room, the coach has had a chance to talk to the players to try to tweak it. The other team decides to sort of give up the ghost a bit, and we still never really put them under too much discomfort or threat, in my view. I mean, do you do you have more trouble with the second half given that we never we never really responded, that we weren't able to to create the kind of danger that we should have? That was for you, Clive. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> oh sorry, mate. Yeah. Um yeah. I- this the way this game unfolded, what's bothering me at the moment is everything is a massive competition. It doesn't feel like we're ever in charge of any moments or, or any moments across to field, any duels, any races. And it just feels so nervy when I'm when I'm watching these games and I'm and I am not negative. I am I'm somebody who looks for the good. But I'm just so so nervous watching us play. I'm just lacking in me, in my own confidence about what I'm seeing. And I just can't and I'm watching other teams look so confident playing against us, because we don't move, we don't go into jewels, we don't press. We're not energetic enough. We have been in the past, up until that Villa game, it's something just disappeared from the team, and we look like the team that we didn't like about a year ago, and that's really concerning. And you can say, well, actually, nine of them are the same people. But they're reacting to different people around them, or meant to be. And then you ask yourself, what's happening here? What's really happening? Before we spoke about distances, before we spoke about shots against, before before we spoke about like a creativity. I, I'm 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 really I've really struggled with that game yesterday. I have I got no mind, no problem in saying that of me and that. It really affected me because one or what happened in the first half did affect me. It really did. It surely affected our players, and I do think it's a mitigating circumstance. However, we're a football team, we're a football club, we're professionals, we have to react, they reacted better than we did. And we we didn't impose ourselves in any form in the game. So you can look at it systemically, and I look at, if you want to take it department by department, defensively, we are one man dependent at the moment, it felt like, and, and I thought Holding did finally came on. And in midfield, we're just we just not connected, and it's it's... It's a continual thing that we're playing the game with no midfield, with no, I don't want to take your words earlier, but no central areas covered in any which way or form. And it's and it's just become, it's just become what we are, right? And this is a reaction to stress, it's a reaction to lack of confidence. And I always look at the personalities and profiles of players and what they do under stress, and I said before that our two central midfielders don't look good under stress. They do the same things, go in the same areas, and it's not good for a partnership to cover space. And our number 10ish player, who was moving in two different roles, found himself way too wide, way too early. And I, and I'm I, then I have to ask myself, was that by design or was that just inexperience? And I'm not sure. And so we're not getting that connectivity. And um, this is stuff you you all know it's just it's just quite disappointing that we've really had a full reversion and you know when emery was going or getting close to the end of his reign there was a a leak from the dressing room that alan smith mentioned about players were confused and it was to do with the language and i can remember dismissing it you know i was the one that said on this podcast, I'm not sure about that. Sometimes players speak, blah, blah, blah. But actually, it was the first indicator there was something wrong. And it progressively got wor- worse in that moment. I'm not hearing the leaks that like we saw back then. I don't feel the same um, pressure, but i am got a similar worry. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. I've got a similar worry about the air coming out of the balloon. And Arteta, I know you know this Elliot has backed a number of senior players. you has been part of those decisions. And it's those senior players that are not producing and they're not stupid. And that worries me, I gotta admit it.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> well look, I mean, this is the hard thing for Arteta. I mean, he made his bed with wanting experience and wanting some really senior players, so presumably for leadership and experience, but like when you lose the senior players, they're much they can much more easily destroy a project. Than the young players, I mean, Tim, it's funny, you, you said this very clearly about David Louise, that when he is on board with the project, he is as good a leader as a club can have. And when he's out with the project, he can poison the dressing room and destroy a club quicker than anybody. <clears throat> and I do wonder, you know, there were reports that he kept the team in the dressing room a long time. And then they trotted Joe Willick out to talk to the press. Little young Joe Willick, not any of those ex- experienced players who are leaders who can go talk to the press and front up to the press. Poor young Joe Willick. And you wonder if it's not because there was some things being said, and not just in one direction in the dressing room, but in both directions. <clears throat> and so that is something to keep an eye on, because we have a lot of experienced players, or you could just call them old, because <laughs> we get a lot of old players, <laughs> who who could be upsetting the, the apple cart a bit. But I, I do think we have to have a bit of a conversation about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Look, there was a moment where Aubameyang is running in so much space in behind two split central defenders who were so poorly positioned that I could have walked onto that pitch, stepped on the ball, and played in Obamayang. And Bukayo Saka, who is a tremendous footballer and and a football I've nothing but immense respect for, could not have gotten it more wrong. And Obamayang was like furious. You could see it. And his body language throughout the game was sort of between a guy who's frustrated, angry, and and kind of disinterested at times, dispassionate. Um mm. I definitely think he's the kind of guy who you make a run and you don't get the ball. You make a second run, you don't get the ball. You make an eighth run, you don't get the ball. You make an 11th run and you don't get the ball. Eventually you say, I'm never getting this ball. And you just sort of, you shouldn't, not when you're on 300 grand a week and you're captain, but you quit. And I think some of that was happening. And I, I am curious where you are with Yang right now. Look, I was one of the people who said play him through the center. Now look, he's getting on the ball more. He's getting more touches. I I, I, I don't think playing him wide worked. This isn't working in part because I just think get it wide and cross it 36 times is not how you work with that kind of striker, but we don't have someone to connect between the lines to begin with, but let, let's have the Yang discussion. I mean, where are you right now mm. on what we're getting from Yang and, and how much of it is on him, how much of it is on the lack of service and how much, if any, is maybe us needing to accept that 31 year old players going on 32 year old players do start to decline, whether you like it or not.
0: <laughs> mm
2: so this this is the first time i worried about Aubameyang um i i cut him quite a lot of slack just because i, I think arteta has been exactly right in what he's saying about you know um we need to help him more and get him in the positions and we we know what kind of player he is he's a low touch player put him in front of goal he'll score and and he's not going to do an awful lot else and you know when he was playing from the left he had like my i guess my problem with him playing from the left became he only had one angle and um, it might be his favourite angle, that that kind of left cutting in. But what we were doing was we were cutting off. This, like this is a guy that moves all across the front line for me. He can he can do everything on the right that he does on the left. Like he mm-hmm. can move into those spaces. Like for me, we were we were giving him one third of the space. That was my issue. Uh, may, maybe a bit more than that, just because it's his probably his favorite space on balance but we made it too predictable um but i you know i i've kind of not gone with the well maybe he's in physical decline thing because of you know all of the other attackers underperforming and the lack of service and blah 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 and also because i think for him to fall into a physical decline we'd maybe see some injuries that's when i'd start to mark maybe more of a physical decline and we're not seeing any of that he's you know he's still not getting injured or picking up aches and strains and 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 you know i i know that's not the only element of falling off a cliff but that's that's a big part of it um i guess i also like i don't think it happens very often that players fall off the cliff overnight um i guess you could look at alexis sanchez it kind of happened to him to be fair um but i i think that that was for different reasons that was an accumulation of games for his national team as well as his club team that I, I don't think Abamian quite has. But th- this was the first time I worried, and not because of the physical decline point. I, I still don't really see evidence of that at the moment. Um, it might be, and it might just be that like, I can't quite see it, but that that's not why I'm seeing. What I, what I saw... Um, for I think the first time since we've had him was disinterest. Um, and what's kind of ironic, and, and I think you're completely right about him being frustrated about not getting the ball, and rightly so, but he actually did get a really good chance from a header, which he missed because he just kind of backed out halfway through. Like He actually got up and jumped, and you're like, oh, okay, now you've got... This probably isn't the chance you'd ideally like, but you've now got a free header. And he just kind of like he turned his back on it. Um, and that I found very concerning. And I guess the other thing about the behaviours, and maybe this is one of the things they were talking about. Do you remember um, there was an interview, I think, with Steve Round right near the beginning of Arteta's reign, maybe even before lo- lockdown, where he talked about not players not showing negative behaviours? Um, and they talked about, you know, if you don't get the pass, like we don't want to see players having a go at each other. We don't want to see shrugging shoulders. We don't want to see, you know, this, that and the other. Um, I mean, we've, we're starting to see a bit of that. I mean, Danny Sabayos is like, seems to be trying to fight everyone <laughs> 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 for, for a start. To be fair, I'd like I... to fight a few of them myself, if we'll be honest. <laughs> Maybe which, starting with um... his midfield partner. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've, uh, yeah. Not the first time David Luiz has been in a bandage. Um, by the way, <laughs> with yeah. with with blood pouring from a wound. But um, uh, but yeah. But uh, Abamyang, this was the first time that Abamyang had those kind of negative behaviors. Which and and I've said before, we never see from him that he's always. Even when he doesn't get the pass, he's always like encouraging, or you know, he he doesn't he doesn't do that. And this to me, like he's looked isolated before and a little down in the mouth but this was the first time to me that he looked like just absolutely fed up I and I just, yes, kind of me. ironically mm-hmm. he was again it's not the kind of service that we want to be giving him or that he wants but he was seeing more well he was seeing a sight of the ball more albeit it was all crosses lumped in but he was actually more involved in that respect. And I know that's not like none of us really want to see that. And I don't think that was the plan, but I think he could have made a little bit more of that admittedly less than ideal tactic. And yeah, this is, this is the first time I felt, yeah, this was, this was as much on a Bamiyang as anyone else.
1: Yeah, and and look, I I just want to, and Clive, I, I do want to bring you into this conversation, but I just want to say one thing about age curves. I actually think people slightly misunderstand, and this is my view. Again, I'm not being instructive here. I'm not trying to be pedantic. I'm just saying what I believe. I think people slightly misunderstand age curves. I actually think players do get old overnight in the sense that the period where they're slightly declining is hard to pick up on and that you sort of don't attribute it to age because it may look like they're just slightly off their game. I mean, look at Jamie Vardy. Jamie Vardy has, what, seven penalties this season? So people probably think Vardy's playing pretty well. You look at his underlings; they're really bad. And maybe Jamie Vardy has hit the cliff and the penalties are hiding it. You look at Alexis Sanchez, he he did hit a cliff, very clearly. Um, But you look at, uh, uh, Yang, for example. How did Yang get to his 20-some-odd goals last season? By massively outperforming XG, which he doesn't frequently do. And so, he winds up on a good goal total, but his underlying metrics suggest he's not really getting the chances anymore. He's not really getting in positions. And you kind of explain it away, well, he's playing left wing, and well, the attack isn't clicking. And then you get into a season like this, and it drops off the cliff. And now he's not outperforming yeah. his XG, and so the numbers of goals are matching the underlyings, and suddenly... I get it. There's still the excuses. The attack isn't clicking. The team is very broken. I agree with all that. There's no service, but you can't just rule out that some of this is the cliff. Uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Tim. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. Do you guys? Um, I was I was racking my brains, and I'm not sure if there's um, if there's an actual word that you guys in the states use for it in NFL because I I keep just thinking Ewing theory with the NBA. Yeah. But when 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 a guy's like in their contract year, and it's it's not like. Um, it's not always a totally conscious, like, oh, it's my contract year, so I'm going to play my arse off until I get the contract. They do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, but but sometimes it's a bit – it can be subconscious as well. Mm -hmm. And, like, last season was – so I just want to make clear I'm not accusing him of just going, yep, got my contract, fuck off. Like, I think it's probably works on a more subconscious level than that. But last season he was playing for the big contract, right, whether it was at Arsenal or somewhere else – He's playing for the big contract, whereas now he's not. And and that must have at least a subconscious impact on a player. Well, uh, and, look, and I couldn't remember if you have a, or whether you just call it the contract no, year. No, it's just the case.
1: contract year. And there's so many examples of players performing terribly after getting a big contract. And I will say this. I read a quote. I don't know who it's from. I'm going to repeat it again because I think it is so good. You Good clubs don't give out contracts for what you've done. They give out contracts for what you're going to do. Aubameyang got a contract that looks like thanks for the great, great work he's already done. But can he possibly be expected to produce at a level that will warrant that contract? In other words, if I said to you, what do you think Aubameyang will produce statistically over the next three seasons? Do you think it would be 300,000 pounds per week worth of output? Probably not. So what you've really done is given him the contract for his past performance. You haven't given it to him for his future performance. And again, I want people to know something. Obamiang is my favorite player. He he really is. I have loved this player since his Dortmund days. And um, I say these things not because I want to have a go at Obamiang. I just think we have to we have to have a good long look at this. You know, and Clive, I'm going to let you come in on Obamiang now. But but I do want to sort of wind this into a squad building decision because at every possible turn. If your squad building decisions depend on hitting the top 10% outcome of every decision you make, you are really, really riding the lightning. So when you sign a Willian and you need a top 10% outcome kind of performance from a 32-year-old, and you give 300,000 pounds a week to a 31-year-old, and you need top 10% outcome from that in terms of upside versus downside, and when you you know, re-sign a, a 33-year-old defender, when you make all of these moves that require you know, top 5%, top 10% outcomes, you're leaving yourself open to an 85%, 90%, 95% outcome possibility that none of that works out, and now you're cratering. And so you can't keep making these short-term decisions that come with huge downside risk, then wake up one morning and say, well, the squad sucks, you couldn't win with this group. Well... You made these decisions knowing this downside risk existed. And when I say you, I don't mean Arteta, I mean the group. And and I think certainly the fact that we had Sven and Gazitas, and then Gazitas was gone, and then Sven was gone, and Raul was in, but Raul's a crook, and then Raul was gone, and Raul Edu's in, but he's still learning, and you got Kia in the hen house, and then it's Arteta, and he's a new coach, but now he's also manager. Sure, it was never never going to result in the most joined up thinking. Clive, but before I go off on any more tangents, I I, I have I have a need to get your take on Obamian, and I, I do wonder if maybe look his buddy is Lacazette. Lacazette's not really in the side. He looked pretty forlorn when he got subbed off against Mold in the, during the week. You know they're not getting to play together. They they really had forged this connection. You do wonder if some of the toxicity exists because Lacazette does look to be a bit of a sulky character, and and they're very tight. I mean, what's your thinking on Obamian and balancing the lack of service, broken team? Maybe not happy. Maybe getting older. Where do where do you come down on the situation with lock uh, with with Obama Yang and his performance right now?
0: I think um, from my angle, I was one of the people that said we should sign him, and the reason why I felt not only was our was he our best player of that period, but he was the emotional leader of the club. Like I felt he was the. The spark the the emotion within the team, he he seems to be very key for team spirit. And so I was thinking, you know what? If we can get two year extension, which makes it three years in total, we keep him for two years, send him into the moonlight after two years, makes sense. Look at his physical abilities; he's still the fastest player in the team. He he has, as Tim said, he hasn't had injuries. I don't see a drop off within two years, and if he does, he can still adapt because he was playing more off the centre-four positions, I'm thinking maybe he can adapt his game to be the second striker and next time I'm a bit younger in his la- in his second <laughs> year. So I'm thinking emotionally and physically, we're going to get two good years out of him and then we can decide what we do out of him in the- with the last year. But what's really caught me by surprise is that he hasn't stopped smiling since he came to Arsenal. But he stopped smiling the moment he put the, the ink dry in that contract. <laughs> and that's the bit that worries me. Not the physical side, it's the emotional side. Because now I'm looking at him, and I can't see him trying. When we're running, and I said this the other game, a previous game, we were, just, we were coming down the left, there was a running line for him, I could see it, I could see it, I could see it, he didn't, he didn't make it. He didn't make it so he could receive the ball, he just didn't make it. He was blocked off. And that's the sort of stuff that he would bust a gut for to get to that ball, to get in front of that defender. When the ball comes in now, he's behind the defenders, not flashing in front. right? He, and he's just not doing it, and He's an emotional guy. He's a happy guy, he's a, and he's not. And so, this is my biggest fear. You know, the stuff we talk about, center midfield and the players, and the system, and the distances, and all the stuff we speak about—the shots against, the shots for—these players are well known to us. It's not difficult analysis for us, to be honest. be honest; it just isn't. And but this, this thing has caught me by surprise because that's been a constant all the time he's been here until recently. So that tells me there's something else happening and, you know, with the touching on squad being a little bit more, I looked at Yang uh, and Louise, I looked at them as, and William, I tried to sort of appease myself and say they're like insurance policies to allow Arteta to build, to allow him to bring in younger players and build them up, but I have these older players actually know the rules and can get you the goals, get you the creation, stop the goals going in, help with the up while these young whippersnappers are making mistakes. That's what I originally thought. Mentors to the group. But it's the mentors that are failing. It's the mentors that are not looking great. And that puts the whole philosophy of, you know, backing these experienced guys. You then have to question that decision. You know, you, you do. And I know you were one that said, let's go 22, 23, let's do it. And... That's, that's another way to go. But I wonder what we'd be like if we were losing games with 22-year-olds. I'd be probably a bit better than losing games with 32-year-olds because we've seen this before. But the direction, I sort of understand it because you, in this modern day and age, Project Youth wouldn't work. But I'm I'm perplexed, mate, by Abamyang. Yang. I've got to admit, I am absolutely perplexed. Like, I haven't got the answer as to why he's just gone so moody.
1: And, and you know what, Clive? Like, here's the thing. Let's say I'm dead wrong. It's not the age curve. It's not that at all. It's other things. Don't you think it's fair to at least suggest when you finish eighth and your squad has lots of problems, there's no one you give a 300,000-pound contract to, 300,000 a week. Not And again, you know, may, all right, if you have the future Messi, you know, fine. But you, you get what I'm saying. That, like... For a club like, let's say you're you're Liverpool and you've just won the title, you've won Champions Leagues, you're at the top and you want to stay at the top, and your 31-year-old striker is in peak form and you say, you know what, we're at the top, we have nowhere to go but down, let's keep this guy for a while, and you sign him. Okay, because you're trying to sustain a period of success. But when you're trying to build a new project and you have a 31-year-old and you just finished 8th, I don't see how a club that just finished eighth can give a 31-year-old a 300,000-pound-a-week a contract, not because there's no chance he could be okay, but because it's just not the right time in your cycle to be committing those kinds of resources to that kind of player. And so, you know, and look, is, Mes- is Aubameyang Mesut Ozil? No, of course he's not. They're totally different in a lot of ways. But it's ironic to me that a club that got so badly burned by the Ozo contract, and to be fair, some of the fault belongs with the club, but a lot of the fault belongs with the player. Let's not open that wound. But a club that got so badly burned by that did something so similar in terms of the sort of squad building and resource allocation uh, approach is, is really head-scratching. And I think, um, you know, Tim, this, this is the thing for me. I want to evaluate Mikel Arteta, the coach. I think that there is room for us to give Arteta time to learn on the job. We hired a young guy. He wasn't going to get it all right away, and he's got a flawed squad. The problem is we made him manager. I really believe that he is as much Vinay and Edu's boss as they are his. He looks very much to have concentrated power in himself. And this is what worries me, is that if we had a really nice power structure above him that really seemed to get it and know what they were doing, and Arteta could learn the coaching gig, he's got some good ideas, he speaks well, he's intelligent, but you know he, he could have some time to really learn and straighten this out, then ma- ma- patience would be warranted. What I worry now, though, Tim, is We've got a guy in there who's very young and learning to coach, but he's also now got all these other responsibilities that I don't see how he can have any experience. I mean, look, this is a really, you've got the COVID market, you've got data analytics coming into the game, you've got more money in the Premier League than ever, hard time to be a manager, hard time to be a director of football, and he doesn't have that structure above him. So I almost feel, Tim, like we've created a situation where it's harder to be patient with Arteta because we've concentrated so much authority in him. And, you know, once you start spending money, once you start committing Wages to Aubameyang for three years, contracts to Willian for three years. You know, once you start making big 50 million pound purchases like Thomas Partey, those aren't things that you can just pivot to a window later. Those are things that are going to carry with this club probably beyond Arteta's role. So where do you stand on what Arteta's role is now and whether that combination of roles becomes a problem for how we address his long term future?
2: Yeah, I I wonder if so publicly they they won't row back on this, but I do wonder, and we've talked about this a lot recently. I do wonder. I mean, they, the the noises are that there is going to be another appointment to replace Husfarmi, but it won't be Husfarmi's previous role that's replaced, really. Um, and you know, we we did a whole podcast on that kind of um, feeling, like that there's there's a missing piece um you know whether that that's at executive level and i wonder if that would just walk this back slightly without doing it publicly um because you know one way or another arsenal might be in a situation where they really have because cuz they've they've gone big on arteta as you said and i kind of i said at the time i wondered if you know changing his his job title to manager in the in the wake of the departure of raul sagne he was was almost like um you know clinging to a bit of a raft a kind of okay um shit's going down behind the scenes we don't really know how we're gonna how we're gonna cope with this and you know we've got this bright young coach who's just won the fa cup and we want to keep him but we don't necessarily want to renew his contract like i i wonder if they were on the cusp of extending his contract Um, just as a as a like you say as a as a reward kind of thing and whether they they were worried that they had this hot young coaching property on their hands and they didn't want to lose him particularly when some of the kind of bigger clubs in Europe are really really floundering and have been for some time Um, particularly some some Spanish clubs and I, I wonder if Arsenal were just trying to without actually Renewing or extending the contract, or basically giving him a pay rise, just just kind of trying to fluff things up a little bit, and whether they can they can walk this back. Um, but to you know the point that you've made several times, Elliot, this this is basically means that not only is he learning to be. A head coach he is also now learning to be um a manager um, and everything that entails with the transfer market and agents and things like that and and also the problem with that is that like the whole point of having a director of football model is that you're not so tied to the manager Um, You know that it's not an easy balance to strike. In fact, it's exceptionally difficult to strike. And I think it fails more often than not balancing that kind of, okay, we need a director of football who is basically setting the strategy. So no matter who the manager is, um, you know, we have the same strategy, but at the same time. Um, the manager will have his kind of short-term objectives. He knows he's only ever a couple of games away from the sack. Balancing those things is so, so difficult. And, and Arsenal have basically kind of gone too far the other way. I think what I would have liked to have seen, and I don't know, may, maybe this has happened behind the scenes and we just don't know about it. I was reading about something that Hasenhutl did at Southampton um, where he started to bring young players into his team and he started to say, like, why does it... T-? And, you know, Southampton play a very specific style and he was kind of like, like we've got good academy players, but it takes them a long time to adapt to what we want. So what they did was they overhauled... Um, well, that, that's over-egging it. They They kind of... Um, I, I forget what they called it. They called it Project Something because everything's got a title like that <laughs> nowadays. Um, but they basically they went. What they did was they went to the junior teams, and Haas and Hootel went. Right, okay. If if the first team is playing like this, we need the junior teams playing like this as well. So that if I, you know, if I need one of them or I want to promote one of them into the squad, and and I, I think that's maybe would have been more of a starting point. Um, for Arsenal than kind of throwing the lot in with kind of okay, you're you're in charge of who we buy and and how much we buy them for because managers have got self-interest as well. Of course they're gonna go with the short term guys. And I think I read someone on on Twitter today saying um, you know, they think that Arteta has a tendency to pick experienced players to make up for his lack of experience as a coach, maybe that that, that that's his way. Um, of kind of injecting a bit more experience into this team and it's, mm. it's not really working at the moment. But I, I think that would have been a better starting point and that is also something that's a lot more comfortable for Edu because that's exactly what he did for Brazil and he did it well um, for Brazil. They're, they're, they're kind of um, younger, un, I was going to say underage teams. That's not not the... <laughs> But their youth teams are, are doing really well and they've kind of they've formalized everything so that so that everyone plays the same. And I think particularly for a club like Arsenal and particularly where we are at least seeing some benefit from young players coming through, I I think that would have been a better starting point to say, right we need to go back to the beginning here. And where do, where should that start? That should start with something like the academy. And that's also just a way of testing the manager and the technical director as well and kind of saying, okay, let's see what they do with this setup. Um, and and if, you know, if they totally revolutionize it, then we can, you know, if if we feel it's necessary, we, we can increase their powers or we can get a better sense of what their strengths and weaknesses are. I, I think in short, we we went, too big too quickly and that creates problems because Vinay as well is a young guy in a big job and he's trying to make an impression and you know before long you end up with the Ed Woodward situation where you stop changing things because you think it makes you look stupid Um, and and I worry that Arsenal are just about to fall into that pattern now where we we stick with things um, maybe that we shouldn't because to not stick with them is basically a confession that you got it wrong.
1: Sunk cost fallacy is alive and well at Arsenal. Um, Yes. And and I do think that we also have the problem that we, you know, we just don't stick to our convictions. I can't tell you how many times um, I've had conversations with people about certain moves we've made that I've had questions about and been told all the reasons they are good. And then later been told the squad is full of bums and Mikel Arteta can't do anything with them because they're bums if they're bums why did we go get them why did we resign them why did we keep them on tie them down to long-term contracts why did we allocate these resources this way why were you telling me you know before one thing and now you tell me another i mean either they're bums or they're not but if they're bums we probably should not have committed to a lot of them or gone and gotten a lot of them um it seems obvious to say the squad is broken but but clive we are 17th in expected goals we are we are not good. And defensively, we're, we're more mid, mid-table. And, I mean, there are some metrics that show we're a little better than that. But, like, I, I think the problem with the squad's no good, hashtag bad squad argument is there is no question in my mind that this team is way, way worse than it needs to be, and that's a problem. There is also no question in my mind that these kinds of statistics that we're putting up, these kinds of performances, are not remotely what this team is capable of. To succeed in football, your coach needs to take your squad and get them playing at least a little better than their potential. And if you get them playing a lot better than their potential, you can win titles, you can win cups, you can win you know, European competitions, things like that. At a minimum, your coach should get your squad to play at its potential. And the worst case scenario is your coach gets your squad to play below its potential. I think statistically right now, even though the squad is hashtag bad, I think Arteta at present... Um, has the squad playing below potential. And I'm just curious if you think that that is a fair assessment of the situation.
0: We can't say anything else at the moment because results are king, right? So, um, you know, we called his group the Uncoachables before, didn't we? And we I had to did. eat some humble mm-hmm. pie because some of these players played beyond my expectations. You know, I, I had to eat some humble pie, no qualms in saying that. And we went from the Uncoachables looking like the most coached team with a pattern with what we were doing in some of the biggest games of the end of last year and the end of last season and the start of this season sitting there nine points from 12 games I'm thinking happy days right let's look forward to the future and um and the, and it's changed, right? So what's and I'm, this is a bit that I can't quite grasp, right? So I know you I know you put a lot of emphasis on the the manager thing. I think arteta has got a style of management leadership, which means he's a manager. I think I also went back towards that model because I think it suited them away from the the head coach model. I think they felt more comfortable with that model. The, the issues we have is, for me, we have a squad with a number of contractual issues, either one year to go by next summer or out of contract, which means we're going to have a lot of players leaving the club, a lot of players. And then we look around the executives and leadership of the club, and I'm not sure we have the experience to make the decisions that we need to make. And we can't get them wrong again. You know, and it really feels that way. Because if we get it wrong again, we're going to disappear to real obscurity. And we could be talking north of 10 to 12 players leaving the club in the next sort of calendar year. And we're going to have to buy six or so. And that means we we need to have the knowledge of the European market, which I'm not sure Eddie does have. And we know that Arteta is inexperienced and we've hired a, a project coach for three to five years. And we don't know his level of experience. In this scenario, but we can have a good guess. right? So we can judge him on the last win. They'll be partying, Gabrielle. That looks quite good. That's all we have. So I'm nervous. I'm nervous about that. And I look at how we're playing at the moment. And you can't say that we're playing above ourselves. And so he's having his first test as a manager as a leader. His first test. And I saw a little video day that my mate Giles posted. Talk about Wenger saying, when you lose two or three games, you've got to stop the rot. You've got to stop the rot. And it's so key that he stops the rot. Don't care what he does, he's got to stop the rot. Because without serenity and tranquility, you have no chance to build. And we've lost that at the moment. I could sense his coming a couple of weeks ago. I could sense it building, building, building. And now it's here. And now we're spinning him around. And now we're pulling him apart. We're pulling statements apart. We're looking at player treatment. We're looking at what he said in the past. And we're we're forensically looking at the detail. Because that's what we do. And the results drive us this way. And when it's working, we overlook it. And we say, This is culture, this is leadership, this is what you want to see, standards, etc. When it's not working, well maybe it's a back that decision. We've done that before. And you end up losing his job. I'm not saying he, you know, I always felt he was somebody that was here for a couple of years, a stopgap, But I personally, I'm more invested in Arteta. I'm more invested in him. I think he suits our club more. I think he can communicate in a better way. I think he's more intelligent. He is not perfect. He had things to learn and he has made mistakes. Big deal. We all do and all the players do, etc. And the next manager will do as well. But we have to make a decision at some point to say, what do you want to be and how do you want to get there? And who's going to do it for us? At the moment, I feel that the shop is a little bit bare. I'm not sure the football talent within the club at the executive level. We stripped out the idiots, stripped out the opportunists, stripped out the money launderers, got rid of them, right? And and now we're in a situation where we need to we need to build something which we recognize and now we're a bit nervous, right? Because we're looking around and the context is that other teams are doing really really well they're making us nervous the mid-table clubs are not looking like mid-table clubs they're challenging us now and we're looking like a mid-table club our North London neighbours are sitting at the top of the league Chelsea have just spent 300 billion quid and they've got all their issues that we slapped them in the FA Cup final we've covered they just went out and fixed them straight away one window bang done no issues send idiots out on loan we can afford to pay the wages and we'll sell them next summer you know, and, and this is this is the scenario that we're in, and we're asking this guy to cover all of this, and I think it's going to be really challenging, and I think it's going to, we have to really hold our nerve here, mm. or we can jump off the ship. We can make a choice. And we'll be back here again a couple of years if we put some standards in place, and put some principles in place, and really, really follow them. That's how I feel. I'm not ready to go yet. It's worrying. Of course it is. You can't say it's working. The, the, the data's there, the numbers there, the results are there. But... We have decisions made about what you want to do and how you want to get there and who you want to get there with yeah and that moment's coming up real soon
1: i mean it, it is really difficult because you can call anything sunk cost fallacy if you stick with it but moving too soon can just make you capricious right or fair weather there is a right amount of time to stick with something and a wrong amount i believe that you should try to fail fast that failing slow in football is the death of a club because you commit to players you shouldn't you let the rot sink in. You stick with a manager that's dragging you down a little too far. Then the situation is very broken, and then the next guy can't really fix it. And Maybe we did that, actually, a little before Arteta got there, and now maybe we're doing it a little bit again. I, I believe, in general, we have overcommitted to the sunk cost fallacy with some of these players that we have stuck with them too long i mean granite shaka looks like a great example of a guy who probably had some marketability a couple seasons ago and probably could have been moved on just not the right player at the right club with the right role and you look at him now and even if you were a big granite shaka defender and look i will admit i never he was he was never my player okay but even his defenders now have to look at it and say yikes big yikes Whatever he could do, whatever he could add, is gone. But now, whatever opportunity we had to sort of move on, we've really long since passed that point. And now, he's not just soaking up some wages at Arsenal, he's soaking up minutes and performing dreadfully. And we've got a lot of things like that. I mean, I think we're going to be looking at Ainsley not
0: new, It's not new, though, is it? To be honest, no, it's totally not new at all. I, I agree.
1: Yeah, yeah, It's not
0: new. We, I mean, we do this and we, we've given contracts to our mates for about five, six years now. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and we've held on to them and I think it's down to talent recognition talent identification and, and style and what you
1: want the team to play like right I mean yeah, understanding the style
0: by, yeah we're being schooled but we're not understanding what modern player is we're being schooled we're being schooled by our contemporaries absolutely schooled yeah
1: and, 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 and that's having, how you fall down to, the table
0: <laughs> absolutely and we're having to coach around these people we said it last week we're having to coach against Leeds. we had to go long we couldn't give them the ball because they couldn't look after it mm-hmm that tells you how have we how have we got here you know how have we got here and how are we still here
1: the the only thing that scares me a little bit you know you look at some of like the past maps and stuff and you know the past map in this game i i think tim you alluded to it it's it's i mean scary the right word right it it it's certainly not what what a past map should look like um you know, it's a horseshoe at the midfield stripe with Obamiang on Obamiang Island. <laughs> I mean, Tim, is that a fair way to describe it? Um, and, yeah. and, yeah, and I mean, I guess what I would say is just, unfortunately, these past maps aren't new. It's not like Arteta had pretty past maps and they've suddenly gone away. I think the thing that makes me nervous a little bit is the data and the past maps and the performances and the results, they're all now sort of confirming a trend that's actually been in the mail for a while been in the post for a while, as you might say on your side of the pond. You know what I mean? Like, like it's not like Mm. the data was good and the performances were good and they've turned is that the data wasn't great. And the maps and the performances weren't great, but there were some results and there were some silver uh, uh, green shoots. And so you were like, maybe that's the trend, but actually the trend was the other thing. And now I feel it's being confirmed. And that's what scares me a little bit, but I want to shift gears here real quick because look, it's rapid Vienna midweek. No one cares about that game, but then it's the Derby at the weekend. It's a scary proposition but a way to spurs might be the game arteta would pick to have next and i think we sort of touched on this in the instant reactions two reasons we will not be favored to win it winning the derby is a thing it's the one thing you can do that can completely change the entire mood of a club overnight it gives him a game where he probably would be within his right to revert back to the system that got him wins in big games, got him the cup. He can almost approach it like a cup final. Play that back three, try to hit him long, down the wings, on the counter, whatever the case may be. And if you week out a performance here, you you not only stop the rot, you turn the whole thing around. Now look, that doesn't fix what's broken. But it certainly arrests the panic and buys you some time heading into the hardest, trickiest, busiest period of the year. So do you agree that maybe, as scary as it is, and as bad, look, we can touch on what happens if it goes the other way, but as scary as it <laughs> is, the Derby in this moment offers him a reprieve that he couldn't get if the next game was Palace away or something.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think what's um, what's kind of fascinating about this game on Sunday is that Spurs are a counter-attacking team. That's what, that's the basis they've worked on. Um, that they don't really want the ball, and so this might be a game where both teams don't want the ball, and they might just stare at it in the centre circle <laughs> and stare each other out until one of them takes it. Um, but yeah, and, and obviously the, the thing I'm, I'm really nervous about in that game is, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm already like coughing blood thinking about it. <laughs> At least you um, won't be there the,
1: or actually, we, well, you, you yeah. will be there.
2: No, will no, 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 no. That's
1: coming up. Uh, no no.
2: way, fans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, so the, the like that Kane Sun partnership and the way Kane drops off and Sun spins in behind, and if we're not playing David Luiz, that's Rob Holding, right-sided centre back. Uh, let's say we go with the back three, which I, I think we probably will. Rob Holding against Sun, that's something that's going to keep me up over the next <laughs> the next <laughs> couple of days. Um, I think, and and what you really need as well, and Chelsea did this brilliantly, because of the way Kane drops off, you need exceptional communication between your defensive midfielder and your centre-back about who follows him and who stays, because the whole point of him doing that is that he drags people out of position, and, uh, and I watched Chelsea very closely on this, and Chelsea decided to stay with their back four, um, whereas they played a back three twice against Spurs last year and won both games. And, and I was looking at that closely, but Chelsea have got defensive confidence back. They bought a decent goalkeeper and a, a very good center half in Chargo Silva. And the communication between Chargo Silva and Angolo Kante was exceptional. They just, they just both knew exactly, you know, who was going where um, at all times. I, you know, do you trust Xhaka or Sabios to do that job? Um, you know, with, with perhaps Gabrielle who doesn't really speak English, mm. you know, I, I worry about that. I worry that actually um, we don't really have that, that kind of, that midfielder that can just mark mm. um, or that can just stay tight, tight to a player like Xhaka and Sabios are both possess Well, uh, notionally possession based players. And so that, that, really worries me and you know Tottenham have added um you know the the left backer is it um, yeah, who, yep. who can really really run um they've gotten Dombele ticking now and you know he can run through players he can dribble through players you know I I worry that if if Villa and Wolves were able to run through us, Tottenham are going to be able to run through us. That's what really, really worries me. Um, But essentially, I think you're right in terms of this is a game where Arteta can really go back to basics, really go back to that formation, almost lean into that muscle memory again, give them the assurance of, you know, three at the back, five at the back, whatever, um, and and kind of go from there um, and try and hit Tottenham on the counter because that's one thing Tottenham... Tottenham haven't done that quite as well um, this season. They just scraped past West Brom because West Brom let them have the ball um, and, and it took them a long time to win that game and they didn't play brilliantly. Spurs are kind of more set up to play the bigger teams, but I wonder if Chelsea just showed the way um, for stopping them or or trying to stop them as an attacking force, because Spurs called off the second half, they didn't they didn't even try to attack after that. Mm. Um, they tried in the first half, they didn't try in the second half, and we've we've got to learn from that. But my worry is that uh, we have a good Brazilian centre half, probably not in Thiago Silva's class yet. We certainly don't have a defensive midfielder in N'Golo Conte's class, and so in in some ways, I think you're right in terms of the emotional impact of such a result. Um, but, I, you know, I'm I'm pretty scared, put it that way. Yeah, look, the, the
1: opposite doesn't bear considering at the moment because we know losing the Derby is painful. If we do lose, it will hurt. I don't know if it will come as a huge shock. Um, I mean, unless it's a hiding and it looks like the players quit and then you have to start asking questions that you don't want to ask yet that feel too soon to ask. I'm prepared to say for now... I see the silver lining of the Derby being the next game because I don't think there's any other game that if we were able to get a result could create a change in the feeling and the mood around the club in the way this can. Um, But maybe I'm not seeing the negative for once, which is there's also no result that could drop us lower than catching a beating at the hands of our rivals. So Clive, I'll finish with this. Um, We have really, in my view made some very, very, very poor squad decisions. And in my view, Arteta is responsible for some of them. I'm not saying for all of them. I said this on the Instant Reaction pod. It can be true that not everything is Arteta's fault and still be true that some things are Arteta's fault. Like, and, and the reason coaches get sacked is you can't sack squads. That's the problem, right? Like if you're in a relegation battle, right? I'm not saying we are, but if you're in a relegation battle, why do relegation-threatened clubs sack their manager? Because they think they have a great squad? No. Because they just need someone to keep them up. They, that's all. They just need someone to keep them up. The point is, it's you can't sack the squad. So the issue for me right now, Clive, is we need Arteta to do better with this squad. It is fully true that this squad <laughs> sucks, unfortunately. But we need him to do better. And I guess what I would ask you is, do, do you think for him... The only alternative is to go back to what was his initial instinct. More defensive, more structured, keep the team from being cut open, and maybe suffer through a season where we score forty five goals? Or do you think he has it in him to find the balance and get both sides of this very flawed squad to to click? What do you what do you believe is his best option to to turning this thing around?
0: In the near term, I think he's got to revert. And the reason why he's run out of um of uh, options because he's got no pepe this week, so he can't really sort that one out. He's got no party in centre midfield, so he, he's struggling there. And so he's. He's he probably lost David Luiz for a head injury. He's he's got he's got he's lost some options. He's lost some spark, so he has to revert to structure in my opinion. Or he may decide, so, you know what, we're going to be a four-two-three-one team next season. I'm going to start now. I'm going and I'm going to fight it. I'm going to try to put the system in. And so yeah, this is, it's just where we are. I think it's, well, Chelsea Spurs game was interesting. I think. Because against City, Spurs were able to take advantage of the fact that City were desperate to equalise after the early goal. But Chelsea were quite cute. They were quite methodical. They attacked in areas where they couldn't really lose the ball and they could get back quickly. And they were very careful about how they approached Kane. They didn't foul him too much so he couldn't get momentum. And they were very deliberate. And I think Spurs look for mistakes and then they ping on you. We're the sort of team that doesn't mind making the odd mistake across centre midfield, which is a worry. It's a real worry. But I do think that Spurs' last performance has been quite defensive, not attacking. They're not very good with the ball, and I think that's going to be interesting. They may get overexcited if they're going to smash us, and it may actually work in our favour. We can revert back to the big game scenarios at Wembley, et cetera, last year. And so it's going to be... It's a, it's a situation where we are, we are still building what you want to be, but I'm afraid we're going to have to be patient because squad-wise, we are not overperforming. But directionally, this squad is in departure lounge. It really is. And so Arteta just got to keep it going until he can change the situation. Is it him? That's the question. Is it going to be him? I hope it is, but he needs some help to do that. And that's my real thought for today.
1: Yeah. And look, if there's ever been any indication of how worthless the Europa League is, it's that we keep winning in midweek and it keeps not mattering at the weekend. Um but I am thankful for Rapid Vienna in midweek because you just got to stop the rot at least a little. R- restore even a drip of positivity going into the derby. Look, it, it, we, we beat Mold. It did nothing for us against Wolves. And the same has been true before Leeds and so on. Well, Leeds was after an international break. Different story. But point is, let's just stop the rot in midweek. If you're a patron, the rot continues because we're going to re-watch the Wolves game. That's right. That's what you're paying your hard-earned money for. And we love you for doing it. And if you're not, no big deal. We'll be back here with free pods, So everybody wins. No ad today because it was just a downer day. But if you do want to shave your privates, use the um, lawnmower 3.0. Go to manscaped.com. And if you use the promo code Arsenal Vision, you'll be doing us a solid. So thanks for that. Look, more football. There's always more football. Thank you. We love you. And we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10. wrapping Vienna new.